The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Nau mai, hoki mai ki a The Fold e mihi nei, ko Dunkinbury toku noa. My guest today is Anna Rafatikano, who is the bulletin editor, so a lot of Fold listeners might be familiar with, with her work and her voice from there. If you don't know, the bulletin is our, our daily newsletter that basically tries to kind of wrap the key stories from the previous day and that morning and, and just be a, a great way to sort of get into the day. And Anna took it over about three months ago and has really, uh, I think she's, she's as, as every editor of it has done, uh, has, has kind of naturally brought her voice to it. And it's got this kind of gentle but but very kind of cerebral quality to, to where she'll unpack an issue for you and it's not easy doing that and there's a lot of thought that goes into it and and so we talk about you know the the process of creation and the the sort of almost paralyzing anxiety she had for the first couple of weeks um, before she sort of started to realize no she she had this and honestly the, the more I get to know Anna the more I'm like and you were born and have been spent your spent your whole life training to 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 do this job. She's she's so good at it. Uh, and we also lead into something which we were kind of announcing here for the first time, which is that she has recently accepted a role which I've had in my head for a while, and I didn't I never advertised it. Just was like, I'm sure the universe will eventually provide this person, much as they did Jane with podcasts. But Anna has has started very recently as our newsletter's editor. Um, newsletters, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, I'm fascinated with them. I think that they are this really interesting sort of relatively, by internet standards, ancient technology, but also they're really having a moment and they, they, they become a big part of my life and they're certainly a big part of our, our, our stable at the spin-up, but also our, our planning there is to have a, a stable of newsletters that marry to our sections and, and our podcasts and so on. Because I think that it feels like a salve to the maelstrom of content and the kind of often combative nature of social media, they just aren't like that. And so, you know, we've recently launched the Boil Up, which is written by Charlotte Muru-Lanning, which is about food in this in Aotearoa, and and she writes with this very thoughtful quality, but also gets amongst the snacks, and it's just it's got that nice kind of tonal edge to it. The same with Stock Take, which Chris Schultz does, um, and uh, and the the weekend, which is our, our, our Saturday newsletter, which sort of gets you across what what we've done over the week. And all of them have this beautiful voice to them, and and we're looking to to grow that uh, stable um, over time. And and really pleased to have Anna overseeing that. 
and and so we talk about that, but but really it's about newsletter culture and the way that the, the media has evolved there. Then we go back to the start of her career because I'd, I've known of Anna for much longer than I've known her, um, and obviously we've only worked together a few months, but she was for a long time, you know, one of uh, the, the sort of original, this is a horrible hack term, and I apologize, Anna, but it is the way that, that you're often described as, as a social media guru. What that really meant was she understood the rhythms of it, was, was attracted to it, and, and kind of felt out the possibilities in those, those early years when, you know, first Facebook and then Twitter and then Instagram and Snapchat and so on just came along and you know, provided avenues for expression. And brands and organizations particularly had to sort of figure out how to be in there. And Anna was one of the best people to do that. She did it first for the Auckland Theatre Company and tells a very funny story about um, how she got involved through that. And then for, for the BNZ, which, you know, a, a giant institution employs thousands of people and has to do like customer service and be a bank and sort of try and recruit people. It's, it does. It does. Just does a lot of different things. And um, but through that lens, you watch the way that social media and society have, have evolved, and that social media has really impacted society. Uh, so that's the back half of the podcast is talking about that and that culture and um, and newsletters are you know they're just so different to it and I think they they have it's not a coincidence that they have risen up as a form at the same time as there has been a widespread sort of dissatisfaction with social media and how how much it does feel like it's impacting us as a species at the moment. It's a real fun mine. I hope you enjoy it. This is. And Rafetikonal on the fold. Kia ora, Anna, and welcome to the fold. Kia ora, Duncan. Good to be here. I have to start. I, I always have. I have this kind of weird guilt around bulletin editors because I just know that it's this really, really harsh job. And people sort of, when you try and explain to people what it is, they're like, "You monster for creating that torture chamber of an employment opportunity." But at the same time, it's consent-based. You obviously walk into it wanting it. What what attracted you to to the bulletin? And what, were you, you know, were you a reader beforehand? I was. I was a huge fan of the bulletin to the point where I believe I accosted several spin-off staff members at various parties and functions to tell them how much I loved it. Um, I just I found it so generous as an approach around news and it's non-proprietary. So it pulled from across all of the different news sources. Um, and Alex, when he started it, you know, just had this kind of style and way of talking about the news that made it feel like he was crafting it just for you every single morning. Um, and because it arrives when it arrives in the morning, there's kind of a like an intimacy around, you know, getting that, like you're literally talking to people in bed at times. And there's kind of a slight morning radio host sort of vibe or feeling to it. And Alex had a great voice. Justin brought, you know, so much to it in terms of that political coverage and also steered, you know, through COVID, which was pretty massive um, and dominant as a news story. But I was a reader from day dot, I think. I was very into, I started getting watching, which is the New York Times TV yeah. newsletter. Yeah, this is lovely. Yeah, and that was the first time I'd sort of seen 
I guess, curation on display from a media organisation, which is we're going to send you off in a whole lot of different directions, but we're also going to distill what is an increasingly enormous amount of information and sources of entertainment into one place for you. So I think I was getting that before I started getting the bulletin, and the bulletin just felt like, like it felt quite revolutionary from a media organisation to go, yeah, we're just going to point you all over the New Zealand news media landscape. Well, I think, yeah, thinking back to, it was, I think it was Toby's idea initially, and it came out of us just talking about how bizarre it was that the, 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 oh, the newspaper had a real editorial hierarchy to it and um, you know it, it had sections and it was very there was a real logic to it uh, and and it was just a fantastic information delivery vehicle the front page of a website has a totally different function like it it presents as having the same function but it has a different sort of set of drivers largely economic drivers around you know the frequency of you know stories and and how they're performing given that it's such a big uh, you know traffic driver for you know, for all of the the stories that are created by um, the New Zealand Her- Herald and stuff that it wasn't actually performing that function of what is the what most important stuff to know today it was what is what are people clicking on the most right now, which is a totally different thing. And that was the idea of the bulletin initially was to get back to that. Now, I think homepages have got a bit less that way since, you know, because stuff has had its mission change and, and the Herald has gone to premium. But still, fundamentally, I think that that idea holds. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's you know, like I, I love that it was seen by people like yourself as that, uh, how have you found it since you've come in? You're now three months in, and it's it must take a while to sort of get your your sort of head around how you know <laughs> how to make it, right? Yeah, I think. I mean, I was I was very like surprised and delighted to be asked, and I was incredibly anxious for the first few weeks because the thing with newsletters is that once they're gone. There's no editing them. So I was deeply worried about, I don't know, defamation or um, not accurately quoting something or, you know, typos, just everything. And I felt nauseous, I'd say, solidly every morning for two weeks. But I feel like I'm in kind of a rhythm now. Um, There were, you know, days during that first couple of weeks where I was like, I don't there's no news today, which is ridiculous because there's always news. But because the bulletin has that sort of short kind of kind of feature right at the top where it takes one topic and, it, and, and explores it in a little bit more depth, this pressure every day to be like, what is the single most important thing? And not even just for today, but, but you know you're writing in advance of the next morning. And so you're constantly making this judgment call around will this still have legs tomorrow? And I think that's the great thing in terms of what you say about the front page of a newspaper is those judicious calls around, is this part of a broader issue that's either going to continue developing or is really important to New Zealanders? There has to be, I think, for the bulletin in the way that there is the front page of a paper, a bar. You know, it has to fit into a bigger jigsaw puzzle. And so I think about the bulletin 
you know, every morning when I pull, you know, the final version of it together, I think about it as a jigsaw. And then I think about, I guess, the broader context um, in terms of, you know, you, you start to see the rhythm of news as well. And I think that whilst, you know, I was frantically getting my head around all the different kind of online news media sites, which I've been reading for years, way too much. <laughs> um, but you get, you start to see like what they put up at 5am and you start to see the the build of a story. You, you can see when something is becoming, you know, it's at a tipping point and is going to probably turn into something bigger. Um, and you, you really start to get your head around the various journalists all of their beats, their kind of style of writing. And so I can see things in the morning now and know that it's, you know, from this particular person at the Herald and therefore will be, um, there'll be some reporting, but there'll also be some analysis, which just adds a bit of depth. So you, you do start becoming deeply familiar with, with the rhythms of, of online news sites and, and with the way journalists kind of tell stories. Yeah, and that, that's that's kind of, you know, one of the things I loved about um, the way that, you know, got to give uh, him credit, but that, that's what, uh, that's something that Alex Bray very deliberately called it. He's, he's just, he's no longer with us now working at uh, Q&A and will be uh, appearing on the fold with, with Jack Tame in a couple of weeks, um, but, which will be lovely to catch up with him, but like, I think he is first and foremost just a huge fan of journalism yes. in almost all its forms and he would source things from Farmers Weekly and and you know like he, he read very broadly and I think that that quality which you, you've absolutely kind of continued with is, is really integral to it because that yeah this, this is a hard business and there's a lot of people doing great work and it doesn't necessarily get its time on the front page but it can be a crucial piece of, of the that the sort of the the way that the the board has evolved to be a bit more of a thematic thing, in uh, the other the other sort of thing, like like and as you say, like newsletters have been around forever, and the bulletin's been around, I think, a bit over five years uh, now, maybe four years, but um, but they had a real sort of moment. It felt like through the pandemic, you know, Substack was obviously mm. part of that, which was a kind of a, a business model change um but you're a big fan of the the genre right uh what what is it that attracts you to newsletters so i love podcasts as well obviously and that felt like this new kind of thing many years ago now um and i started reading newsletters because a few of my favorite podcasters kind of i guess extended you know, what they were able to talk about and share with podcast listeners via newsletters. And so there were these kind of adjunct um, extra little bits that you would get. And they just felt more intimate than other forms of media. And I think because they arrive in your inbox, I mean, it's quite regressive in a way. It's email, which most people, you know, would describe as a plague in their life. And now we kind of we're in the midst of this very big kind of moment in terms of almost going back to this form of delivery. But it's more intimate. It's quieter. I find in terms of just being able to read something, think about it for five seconds, I don't have to do that with anybody else. It's not happening in, a, in an online public environment, so I can just file it away. And it's got kind of an ephemeral quality to it because you get it, you skim it, you might click out of it and read something else and then you delete it and it's gone. Um, so I think it's a really 
great way of engaging with so many different kind of ideas and topics without sort of feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I also love the style in terms of writing that so many newsletter writers deploy now. It's got that kind of, I'm writing for you, it's bloggier. You know, it's, it is this thing where the, some of that stuff from the early internet has kind of re-emerged again and I think goes back to some of that early sort of promise of what we were hoping or how we, how we thought we would be able to talk to each other online. Yeah, I think that that's the that that sense of we had something and it fell away without us really having a you know it wasn't like we all collectively got together and thought oh let's leave that sort of two thousands internet culture because we're, we're building a better one. In fact, we were we just got a, got sucked into this maelstrom of 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 of, of really what ultimately became this hyper public hyper sort of share you know everything is pushing you to try and go mass and, and we'll talk about that shortly because you've got a, you know, a lot of, of experience and, th- and, th- and perspective on that too. The, the, yeah, it does feel like that they, the revival of newsletters represents, uh, it's, a, it's a new old form but it is also a nostalgia for a different kind of, of discourse, um, all of which Kind of leads up to uh, you know what what we're sort of a- announcing for the first time here, which is you have yeah you know, when you started the the uh, uh, editing the bulletin it was a, a part time role but we've recently kind of made it official and full time and and quite a you know if, if your original job wasn't was unchill and uh, enough this is even more so but it's also one I think we're both super excited about which is you as newsletters editor at the spin off. You know, again, what 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 made you want it, and and what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think so. Obviously, love the form which we've discussed. I there's a line in a profile of David Leonhard who writes the morning for the New York Times, um, and I read that before I started the bulletin. And obviously, he's at kind of like God level tier in terms of being a, a newsletter editor. Um, but there's a line in a profile of him which talks about the New York Times as discussing the fact that they have four front pages. So they have The Morning, his his newsletter. They have The Daily, which is their podcast, the, the print front page, and then the website homepage. And I mm. just love that idea. I love the idea that people are able to engage with news and information and entertainment and content in whatever form they choose. And I think newsletters are a huge part of that and I think they're going to be a huge part of the spin-off in terms of this idea that we where you want to engage with us, you know, it, it, it's not just solely based around the site. You know, the site is really important, but you've now got so many choices around how you might do that. And again, it just feels very generous and and back to that kind of way of speaking more directly to our readers and people forming relationships with our editors, you know, who who are credible experts and people who've got a lot to say and passionate about the subjects that they write on. There's a whole kind of way of writing and sharing news and information that newsletters facilitates, which I think is 
more difficult to replicate in other environments like websites. There's something, and we've touched on it a little, but about the way that you write when you're writing an email, because we, we, we do it a lot and you know, mostly it's one-to-one or one-to-group. It can be you know, in the same place you'll have like a, a little thread going that, that's a, a social occasion, another thing that's work-related. And there's something about the, the sort of fast mode of it that I think it actually I think encourages good writers to be to write somewhat differently and often better than certainly that there's there's something about a formality that you feel like you need to do when you're creating a a piece um, making scare quotes here for for a website and also that sense of the this big audience that might just come across it and because of the sort of social distribution channels, it's quite hard to turn the dial down there. Um, there are obviously many good things that have come from that scrutiny and certainly the ability to, to have a story go out and find uh, an, an audience. But there's also some parts where there can be, you know, a, an audience can seize upon it that wasn't intended or can make a bad faith critique of it, uh, that it, it just can go wrong in ways that an email, which is going to a known audience that self-selects as being interested in your thing, whether that's, you know, what Charlotte Murulanning brings to, to Food Through the Boil Up or, or Chris Schultz's uh, an, uh, stock take, which is a, a different take on business, which is part of your, your, these are both parts of your stable now. But I love the way that both of them write within that because it is, it's familiar from their work, but it's also the informality is really, really quite, um, it's it's just a different tone that I, you can't really replicate on the site. hundred percent. And I think for both readers and writers, there's like a level of relaxation that comes with the form. I mean, I remember feeling like that when I first writer, started writing for print, you know, because I had been an online columnist for years. And I feel like I was always, I kind of always stayed in my lane, so didn't end up, you know, starting a Twitter war with the things I was saying. But the sheer relief of writing for a magazine, which you know, like nobody can click a button in a magazine and send you angry feedback, which is really nice. And the fact that it, you know, almost almost opposite to newsletters, it kind of just disappears into waiting rooms and people Mm. pick it up at various different kind of junctures. And I love that sort of yeah, newsletters have got it, but almost in kind of, again, that sort of ephemeral form where it sort of just disappears again and you don't carry it around heavily just as you, you know, just like flicking through a mag in a waiting room. It's just, I think for writers as well, you know, being a writer, being a journalist, working in the media, especially in a social media environment, I feel like now comes with very high levels of anxiety often. And I think... People, there's a fantastic article about how you can pick um, a writer who's too online or on Twitter too much because they start caveating absolutely everything they say, right? Like you could have a thousand word piece where 300 words of it are sort of declarations and apologies and um, and that kind of thing. And it's it's a it's a it is a weird tick. It's so it's so and, and I look I'm as guilty as anyone of it, and I'm trying to be less so, but. It's almost like you know how they used to be that thing like you you could have like a, a link in your Twitter Twitter bio that which which basically just explained like it almost it's like a it needs to be like a collapsible function on these stories like these three paragraphs are just mm. me kind of apologising for various things I don't think it's it makes for great writing no because it, I mean I think if you are 
genuine and sincere about the things that you are saying and you're not setting out to deeply offend people, you cannot expect everybody to know and understand absolutely. I talk about that in the bulletin quite often if I'm writing on a subject where I've previously had zero (laughs) subject matter expertise. And I think, you know, coming back to newsletters, that's a form where you can insert yourself a little bit more personally, where you can put your hand up and admit to foibles or not knowing absolutely everything in the planet. Like, I love that around Chris Schultz's business newsletter, Stock Take. He's very deliberately said, you know, I'm I'm not a business dude, but I, I love the people at the heart of business, and that's kind of the position that I that I want to take. And I think going into people's inboxes, having a relationship as an editor of a newsletter with your readers just gives you a more permissive environment. Agree, agree. Um, and, and I think that it does feel fundamentally different from, because it's like, it's just a chronological feed and, uh, you know, it, it's it's all in one place. It's not, necess- you know, you can leave, but you, it doesn't naturally encourage you to, to leave. Like there's, there's actually just some really elegant design there that, it, that feels quite useful. Um, and we'll talk about the difference between that and social media in a bit. But just before we do, um, as much as I would love our the Folds listeners to subscribe to any and all of our, our newsletters, because I, I genuinely love them and I read a ton of newsletters, I think both of us, uh, and there's a few few at the spinoff who have become just totally obsessed, Shanti Matthias, who's taken over um, the weekend, is, is another. But... What what are some of the the newsletters that you subscribe to that aren't made by the spinoff that that have kind of been kind of like oh this is really something kind of moments for you? Yeah, so I love Dirt, which is a, a Substack fave. I just think the way that they write about entertainment and pop culture. I think, again, it comes back to that style and that freedom of style that you get with newsletters, where they're just kind of dashing lines off and just dropping, you know, as reading something um, last night, which was kind of about um, J.K. Rowling and, and Bette Midler and some not great stuff going on there. And it's just like one line. And then because a lot of newsletters have really embraced that kind of curatorial approach where they'll just drop a link in. Mm. Um, if you want to read more, you can, but you just kind of get this very um, like fun conversational style of writing. So they're fantastic at that. I the, the other thing that's sorry to interrupt. The, the thing that's really cool about that is that it feels like it's showing. It's starting to shine a light on where newsletters, as a this new kind of emerging culture, might go because it's not a single author. Like it's a, it's a, almost like a little mini publication mm. that's delivered to you in pieces. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you know, that, and that's again what's really exciting about newsletters is that. I kind of went in sort of following single writers. Um, and I still do. There are still some writers that I read, like someone like Freddie DeBoer, who I you know, I don't agree with everything he says, but because I'm in that environment, and he's, he's really clever and he's a deep thinker, um, and it's just in my inbox, I don't have to carry that kind of baggage of going, oh, no, what will other people think of this? Yeah, am I you know? like a, a public endorser of all of their views by virtue of following, you know, like it, it is, it's it's a really different totally. relationship. So I love them. I love Today and Tabs, um, Embedded, 
Um, Lincoln Bio, which we've talked about before as just being a fantastic name for a newsletter about kind of social media and, and kind of the experience of people working in social media. The, and that's another thing that they can do really well is they can be super narrow um, but still, you know, in a way that you couldn't really have a website. Well, I mean, you can have a website devoted to social media, and there are multiple. But this, it allows you, as a person who is interested in a bunch of different things, to stay across these different sort of narrow but really well written and thoughtful subject areas without, uh, you know, in a way that because it comes to you. You don't have to go, like, say, okay, my plan today is to get through 15 of the 800 websites that I think do interesting stuff periodically. That's the thing. And, you know, it's like something like um, Dylan Cleaver's The Bounce, which is just such a great way to kind of get into sport because he's got such a fantastic style of writing. He knows his subject area so, so well. So you know that he, you know, he's on to what he's talking about. But he just kind of riffs on stuff as well. And so it's entertaining. It's kind of changed, I think, you know, where you would read sports news. There's new this new form from people that you trust and you really like their work um, who are kind of just bringing it to you in a different way that makes it a hell of a lot more relatable. And also, he can't, you know, there's a prioritisation going on there. You know, you know the sports that he really genuinely loves and wants to dig into, but he'll also kind of do the job, which, you know, I think is one of the big jobs of the bulletin, which is kind of pull out the stuff that is actually important. Yeah, his voice is, is brilliant. The funny thing is, when I've, I sort of chatted to Dylan, he's, he's been a, a guest on this podcast as well, and, and I, there was, he used to write the back page of, I think it was like maybe, it was like the super sport insert potentially, like so it was something in the Herald for, for a few years, and the tone of that was so different to the rest of the, the the book. It was, you know, which was all sort of reporting and, and it had, you know, this is a column, this is a feature. This was just like a very chatty, here's some funny stuff. I saw, here's a thing that I noticed, none of which really deserved to be blown up into a feature, but it really suited that format. And I think newsletters is all, at times can be all that kind of stuff. The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O-Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, I want to flip now because there is some, I don't know if it's an irony or it's certainly super interesting in the fact that 
you know, before we ever met, um, I, you know, I knew who you were and you were famous as, you know, to my mind, or, or very much known for being one of the first people to really understand social media and be a be someone who worked in very senior levels for really big institutions, sort of guiding their journey into that space. So on some level, you must have loved it and found it fascinating, and yet now both in terms of the interest in newsletters, which are certainly feel like a reaction against what social media has become, but also I think in your own personal habits, you've sort of reversed from it. Um, you know, tell me a bit about what 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 drew you to social media in the first place, and then maybe a bit about what what it what what drove you away as well? Yeah, so I it was entirely personal to start with. I was working um, for Auckland Theatre Company at the time in a kind of sponsorship and fundraising role, and I had joined Twitter. I joined Twitter because I'd seen Tim Minchin perform at the Auckland Festival many years ago and I developed... It's the natural thing to do is join Twitter. Yeah, well, I think like <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing with Twitter, right, is that I still fundamentally believe, I think it's something Ryan Broderick has said about it, is that it's a fan app and it's a fan app for current affairs and the latest celebrity meltdown and all sorts of stuff. So I joined Twitter because Tim Minchin was on Twitter and I had a disgusting crush on him. <laughs> and I was kind of like, this is a way that I can get more Tim in my life. Um, and as I was kind of adjacent to the marketing department at ATC, I was like, I feel like we should be on social media. I had no idea what we were going to do there. And this was 2000 and maybe nine, ten. And so it just seemed like this incredible free way of being able to tell people what you were what you were doing. There was no strategy. There was no plan. It was just, I had an inkling that it would open up kind of a more conversive style of communicating outside of the sort of formal marketing communications channel. And I had an inkling that it was also massively disruptive in terms of, I guess, the way that it democratised publishing. Yeah. So that felt really exciting. And then from ATC, I was asked, and this is why I can't rag on Twitter too hard, I was asked via Twitter to consider going to work for the Bank of New Zealand as their community manager, was, which was not a, like a pivot I ever saw coming. And so I did. Uh, and got, those were like kind of the halcyon days of brands bantering on Twitter. We would spend an afternoon, you know, behind the BNZ Twitter account, just like having these ridiculous kind of wars with ASB Bank. And people would like watch this and engage with it and think it was great. And it, I think, you know, the promise of it is that it would, you would see the people behind the logo. Um, and I ironically would always talk about the presence of the bank on social media as the talking logo. And, you know, over five or six years at the bank, we kind of, developed sort of much more kind of formal process around the things that we were doing. I remember, you know, the BNZ starting on Twitter and it was kind of being run out of like the PR and comms team, corporate affairs team, and it was very much here's a PDF link to something an economist has said, we're going to share it. Because it was sort of like, wow, there's this place that anybody can put stuff without having to work through kind of PRs or journalists or pay for it. Amazing, free reach. 
Um, and within about three days of the bank being on Twitter, they got their first customer complaint. And so within a very short space of time, the whole thing pivoted to this customer service. It's just trying to it's trying to do a lot of different things, right? And, and that's kind of it. And I think that's, you know, organisationally and for brands. I mean, I think I probably worked through the period of time where people really thought it was like a silver bullet in terms of, I guess, reducing the gap between customer and business. And it would make people love your business. I mean, I worked in the banking sector, so so that was always going to be hard graph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's not, you don't think love um, when you think... No, and I mean, bank. you... The great thing about it is you got exposed to absolutely everything people loathed about <laughs> <laughs> their experience of, of banking. Um, and I settled into a kind of rhythm where I was like, we, sure, we can, you know, as the kind of functionality of social media started to splinter off across multiple departments, you know, it has a marketing function, definitely has a comms and crisis PR function recruitment it was starting to be used in a big way in terms of employer branding um, and then even just for you know people working at the bank you know how did they build their own kind of professional brand so it got really multifaceted but at the end of the day I always had this bottom line which is we have to be useful <laughs> that that is the best thing we can do and so we did actually build up like quite a a tight customer service kind of process there and had a reputation for fixing things faster than you could perhaps do on the phone. The problem with it is the scalability of that approach. And I think lots of organisations have, over the last few years, hit the wall on just how much social media can do, and it's now pretty operationalised. You know, we've we've really moved past the days of everybody trying to do the Oreo dunking in the dark moment, you know, like as some sort of, like, brand silver bullet yeah. for a whole year. Like Oreo dined out on that for years. It was in every single social media presentation and conference for years and people kept on trying to recapture it. And I just think the functionality of social has splintered so much. If you're an e-com business, it's it's a huge kind of place. I mean, Instagram, I think, is making a very large shift into becoming essentially a shopping channel. So it is, it's very important to different interest, industries for different functions, but there's no kind of single cohesive unifying, I guess, purpose or function around social media for business. It is operationalised now. But interestingly, I am constantly coming across people who are still sort of just landing on the beach going, social media, we should do something about it. Or people who work in social media who are dealing with the exact same stuff I used to, which is my executives don't understand it. It's not a dumping ground or a place to put things for free, you know? So <laughs> yeah. it's just weird. We've, we've gone so far down a road and yet it's this kind of new dawn breaking every day for people all the time. And I guess that, the, you know, a lot of it is that society is in motion. These, these are products, so they are changing. And every time they're changing, they're changing to accomplish a bunch of different things, but largely to try and you know, maintain the attention they have, ideally increase it and not, not cede more to whatever the next platform coming down the, the pipe is. And not all of that is conducive to, in terms of all the, the different nudges that are deployed, to making you have a nice time on social media, as, as the kind of saying goes. But the, the thing that's interesting to me is like I, I sort of think about 
And and because there are so many different social medias, there is business social media, there mm. are brand and band and journalist, and, and they all have their own sort of cultures and mores, and so and yet we just use this shorthand for it that means that we're all discussing like a bunch of different things, and is any wonder we don't understand each other. The thing that's that I've been thinking about lately that I'd be sort of curious about, and that and which ultimately caused my withdrawal from it was, you know, when when the spinoff first landed on social media. It was really common for the comments to just fill up below a story when posted on Facebook that was just a great story or I found this really in- interesting and heaps of people sharing it saying this was an interesting story. And now it feels like the same people, uh, if they comment at all, it's just a complaint. And I know that this is the same writer writing a similar kind of story, but it's just become a... Facebook in particular, and there's eight, all of the platforms have different attributes as, as far as their relationship with, with publishers go. But there is something about the what is a normal thing that you can imagine someone doing? I sort of think that's a good place to start from. And it's not, you know, for, there is still some small subsection of people who might share in that way. But for most people, it's like, I'm going to denounce this thing potentially without having read it. And um, that's just. It's yeah, that's just the sort of weight that 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 sits on it, and I think it it's why there is you know a growing certainly from from my mind, and it's very hard to figure out whether it's come you know to what extent this is informed by media or your own personal experience from it. But it does feel like you know you talk to people that it comes around that people just don't enjoy it as as much anymore, and they they view it in a much more complex way than than the kind of starry-eyed way you, we did when you first came on to Twitter and just started, you know, being a theatre company and it was fun, or even a bank and yeah, it was fun. Yeah, and it being, yeah, I mean, weirdly it was. And, you know, people would just talk to each other about, you know, we would all watch TV together and tweet about TV or, you know, we would use Facebook to, I don't know if you've ever gone back or, you know, looked at your previous Facebook posts, but we would write in third person and just post like one line about I am eating, you know, Anna is eating toast right now, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just ridiculous. And it felt like just this kind of incredibly quick, fast way to sort of maintain relationships and and keep in touch with friends and family. And I do still think that's largely how I think about Facebook. I don't really use Facebook a lot. I mean, I think horribly, like as a writer over the years, I've primarily used to kind of just shill my own work. But I don't really post, I don't post stuff there anymore. Um, I do use Instagram for that purpose. That's probably my tightest little group. But I, I think I clocked that sort of like real lizard brain, reptilian kind of thing that Facebook in particular triggers. And I I don't know why. It's definitely got something to do with the kind of layout and functionality of that environment where people don't even read what's above, you know, the, the comment box. They'll, yeah. they'll see some words and they'll just spit something out. And it does encourage, I mean, there, there's been quite a lot of research. It does encourage this very, like, almost primordial response in people and they just throw something out. I mean, I'm, I shouldn't be flabbergasted by what I see on Facebook because, as you know, I used to moderate the Banks social media pages and and when all this sort of misinformation disinformation stuff around COVID and vaccination really started heating up, I perhaps was not as shocked as everybody else because, you know, 
the bank used to get a lot of commentary around um, the Illuminati and um, the Jewish banking cabal mm. and just a whole lot of like really at the time quite deep-seated conspiracy theories that have risen to the fore. Um, I think it's just the very, and I think LinkedIn does this as well because it's almost got um, an identical kind of uh, feed structure to to Facebook. It just encourages the most adamant responses where people are immovable on what they're saying. And that feels like sometimes they've gone somewhere specifically or hunted something out just to say that thing that they have said on 155 posts that day, you know? And, and when that becomes the dominant mode of expression, if you if you are a it's complicated, you know, middle of the roady kind of thing, A, the, the, the whole sort of structure of the thing doesn't seem to push you to do that, and B, you see, if you're just seeing the extremes at war with one another, it doesn't. That doesn't feel like there. It doesn't feel like there's room to to be in the middle ground. And I, I, you know, getting back to newsletters, there's something about the kind of way it, they feel like they really push you to kind of in that sort of digressive way to sort of try try and figure out what the muddle is. Well, I think they're like lower stakes, right? The the experience is perhaps a little bit more passive, but you've also got all the, I guess, the delightful kind of accoutrements of um, styles of writing that have, I think, largely developed because of the internet and social media, but they're just in a safer space. Whereas social media now, I mean, I was on Twitter for a very long time and I've, I've deleted my account in the last couple of months and I don't want to be one of those people that becomes like a martyr about that. Mm. But I just found it too noisy and I think when I stepped into the job of the bulletin, the thing that I really wanted to try and maintain was that kind of sense of being able to prioritise and to provide context. Like the thing that happened today that is getting sliced into the finest pieces on Twitter. You know, that's the thing about Twitter is it like microplanes absolutely everything to death. I didn't want to bring that into the bulletin and so I have stepped away and stepped back. And sometimes I worry that I'm missing stuff or missing the nuance, but I think for newsletter readers and newsletter audiences, you know, it's about trust in the person that's writing it and and sending it to you. Um, And I feel like... You know, the role of kind of Twitter and the influence of Twitter has always been outsized. It's a very influential platform that not a lot of people in New Zealand are on. Oh, that's exactly right. And um, I'm conscious that you know, we, 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 the two of us, have talked a bunch about this and, and will again, but uh, I feel like I should actually let you go and, and start work on t- tomorrow's bulletin. But it's been so good having you on the pod um, to today, Anna, and yeah, really, really looking forward to seeing where you take our little stable. Oh, thanks for having me, Duncan. It's great to be on board. The Fold was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with Daylight. It was hosted by Duncan Grieve, produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis.
Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.